Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with John Berger, CEO and founder of Sonova Energy Corporation. Sonova Energy is a leading residential solar and energy storage company. They are part of Sonova's mission is to provide energy independence And right now, with inflation and the growing concern of grid reliability and decarbonization, this is a timely discussion to have. With that, let's get into this conversation with John and see how they are driving energy independence for both individuals and families. John, thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to Sonova Energy Corporation. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, my background is 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 pretty simple. Uh, I grew up in a small town outside Houston. Um, it it, it uh, is is known for the Texas A and M University, uh, and uh, so I grew up in Bryan, Texas. Um, and it, it really set uh, in terms of a firm foundation around uh, not only uh, you know working hard and 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 uh, being able to. Um, really appreciate capitalism and, and be, growing up uh, with a, an entrepreneurial family, but also I grew up in the construction business, so I got to see a lot about how uh, you know a, a contractor really works, uh, job site works, and so forth. And that w- that is really helpful when you look at you know, solar installations, battery installations, and so forth. So I got a civil engineering degree, went up, started working in the power business. Uh, you know, traded power, ran a utility from the control room, did derivative structuring, a bunch of different projects, venture capital. And then I spent some time at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in Washington uh, under Chairman uh, Wood, and then came back and started working in venture capital again, and then said, you know what, I'm, on the, I'm more on the entrepreneur side. I'm going to stop torturing the entre- entrepreneurs, and I'm just going to be one. And the first business was a solar contracting business. And uh, we did uh, commercial, residential, and government installations across the southern United States. Sold that business. Uh, this is from 06 to, to 10. And then started another business, uh, which was uh, a, a looks a lot like Sonova. It uh, looked a lot like Sonova. And it was a residential energy service provider that uh, had the origination and, and, and installation work, uh, the construction work that I just mentioned. It was actually done by third parties and, and or what we call dealers. And I had that business from 11 to 12 and then sold it to a much larger power company and then started Sonova in late 12, really with the same model, uh, a lot focused on uh, contracted cash flows and making sure we had a great balance sheet. That's taken us almost a decade to build up, but we're we're there now and 
issued the industry's first green bond. And our vision has been, as you, as you mentioned, is uh, achieving energy independence. And the reality is, is that what we're doing is we're building a mini utility system on everybody's home that's a customer of ours. And solar's the piece of us. So we have solar inverters, batteries, EV chargers, generators that, yes, burn natural gas. And we also have uh, uh, load management that goes around there, managing the demand side of, of the home. And then having our software system pull all that together and then having our men and women uh, deliver the service like a utility. And again, I, oftentimes I describe Sonova as a wireless power company. And so we're answering the phones, we're dealing with any sort of billing issues and and answering those billing questions and so forth. And then we're also uh, rolling trucks to go out and fix the the hardware, uh, you know, the panels, the inverters, all everything that it could go wrong. Uh, it, it certainly does at some point in time. And, and our men and women roll out there and, and fix the problem. And then we're aggregating those homes together to participate in the wholesale power market or the utility or however you want to phrase it, the grid. Uh, and and eventually we see, and, and maybe even quickly, getting to the point where we actually end up uh, aggregating these homes into a microgrid that may or may not be connected into uh, the utility or the monopoly power system. So there is a uh, you know quite distinct vision that we have for the energy industry not just for the United States, but globally. And uh, we, we see ourselves as the, uh, the service provider uh, that's going to provide the uh, uh, abilities to go and a- able to operate off-grid, but also to operate with the grid. So basically operating on what they call behind the meter status, uh, first of all, focused on residential, who knows in the future may do something on the commercial side as well. So uh, that that's the business. And uh, and it's something that, that we're pretty excited about. We're seeing a lot of of uh, progress being made. Technology's moving faster as the money's flowed faster over the last three years into this area. And we see a, a transition uh, on the energy side that's happening. But again, let's let's keep in mind it's a transition. We can't. It's not a light switch. Uh, pardon the pun. We can't just flip the switch and have solar on everybody's rooftops uh, in the next year or two. But we certainly see over a period of time that that would be the case, that uh, most people would have solar and batteries and, and have service, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, from Sonova. That is really exciting, everything you just said, some of which is way over my head, some of which is just barely over my head. And nearly all of it has completely flipped my understanding of of what residential solar is. My I guess my initial thought and what what I was was first exposed to almost 15 years ago now was taking solar panels, putting those on your roof and having some large basically bank of car batteries in your basement. Me being from Illinois, we did have basements. So a, a large bank of car batteries in your basement. And really everything you are saying right now sounds like it is it is completely different than the solar installations 15 years ago. So I want to make sure that that we're all on the same page when we're talking about what is a, a typical residential solar installation. So can you just walk us through, give us that common ground, what is a, a residential solar I guess, power plant? Well, right now, 
you know, you look at the the the, mat, the panels or the modules as as we call them themselves. They've been going steadily up in energy density or wattage. So the first panels that uh, I put on uh, about ten years ago, maybe maybe longer than that actually, as I'm thinking about it, uh, it were about 160 watts. We're now doing uh, in regular fashion somewhere between 420 and I think the the largest that we put on is a is a 450. A wattage a panel. So that's a pretty good uh, increase in, in energy density, uh, energy efficiency as well. And so when you look at the cost per watt, cost per kilowatt hour. And so you've had technology progression. Uh, there's been some years that have been more of a step function change than others as some of the technology slightly shifted. I think that trend continues. So you're going to get more and more per square foot. way to think about it. And then the inverter side of things, you can put the inverter on the side of the house, or you can put the inverter in the uh, on the panels. And then uh, also, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, new capabilities and technologies uh, with batteries, for instance. And so the inverters are often included in the batteries, in what we call an energy storage system. And then I would also predict that we, you know, EV chargers become pretty standard, and so they're going to have some capabilities on the inverter side, obviously, and some of the control technologies as well. And then you look at the demand side and how do you manage the demand, you know, the home, your air conditioner, your water cooler or heater rather, uh, and pool pump, et cetera, whatever it may be. So all these are coming together and basically the basic solar system right now is just still modules and inverters, whether that, again, that inverter is, is on the side of the house or on the rooftop with the panels. And that's it. And so what's happening now with an increasing uh, frequency is that people are getting energy storage systems or batteries. And they're doing that because they want to store the energy, not give it away to the utility uh, during the day and use that energy later uh, for when they need it. Uh, So basically for reliability purposes, when the grid's not there, storm, wildfires, you name it. Uh, that uh, increasing frequency of, of disruptions in, in uh, centralized power or monopoly power services, uh, that, that, you know, that is increasingly occurring regardless of where you live, but in some places worse than others. And so a lot of folks, again, are getting batteries for that reason. Uh, but a, an even more important side of this is how would you uh, manage the demand to maybe not need as much battery, maybe not as need as much solar energy, so that's something that we see is about to start to ha- take place as well. And it's uh, coincided uh, in terms of timing very nicely with the absolute surge in utility rates that, that's occurring across the country. And we predict quite confidently will accelerate uh, in, in terms of the uh, percentage increases of utility rates uh, this year due to higher natural gas prices, higher coal prices, just higher prices of, of everything to do uh, with energy. So uh, we're encouraging our customers to get solar modules, solar inverters, batteries, and then eventually, of course, we will be able to offer uh, load management, EV charging as they get the EVs and take advantage of those low electricity prices because no matter how much higher they go, they're still a lot lower than those uh, gasoline prices and diesel prices we find today at the pump. Mm-hmm. <coughs> So when you're talking about the load management, the first thing that popped into my head is like a Nest thermostat. But it sounds like is this is this beyond a Nest thermostat? Something that is looking at 
the entire energy system of the house? Yes, that's correct. And so think about how do you, how could you make your home energy system more and more smart? And so I could I'll, I'll throw some buzzwords of you know AI and machine learning in there. That's going to be a part of our software platform and working with these hardware pieces that um, are solar modules and inverters and batteries and and even generators uh, for those homes that really use a lot of power. It can't be just covered with uh, because rooftop limitations, uh, solar and storage. We have that uh, to add to the um, menu or or you know skill set or wherever you want to put it. Tool set is probably a better way of putting it. Uh, for consumers as well. And so you're creating this, uh, uh, you know, a, a, again, a mini utility system. And so our objective is, is that, that the consumer and the, the homeowner never knows that the demand is being managed, that they can do whatever they want, but it's, we're managing the demand on their behalf in a much more intelligent fashion. So we can stretch out that solar, you know, energy and stretch out that battery um, energy and, and time, if you will. So it's using uh, what we have uh, with energy much more efficiently to make the consumer's dollar go further and to make the consumer's home more reliable. That makes complete sense, putting all these pieces together. Just one last question on that management software. Is that something that Sonova has internally that is part of this whole package or is that something that that is that is a outside provider it's going to be both it's going to be uh that some of the software that operates on uh a you know piece of hardware that would manage the load is you know some of that software is going to come from the manufacturer of the hardware and then how do you stitch all these pieces together and then look on your phone or ipad and be able to see everything that's going on in your home, that's going to be uh, more likely uh, our uh, application or app uh, that you're going to be able to do that through. And then you can see all the different service, request service, uh, if you think something's wrong with your power um, service, um, any sort of uh, billing questions and transfer a contract when you sell the house, all those different kind of things. And then we've got to be able to operate in a very efficient fashion uh, dispatching people, technicians to your home if something goes wrong. And so it's going to be a combination of software pieces that come from the hardware manufacturers, uh, like a Tesla, like a Generac, like a, another few companies, Enphase, SolarEdge, et cetera. But then mostly it's going to be our software platform that's really, again, think of us as a wireless power company that we're building out this software platform to make everything run more efficiently for you so we can we can give you a better deal. Yeah, that makes sense. I like the idea, and and I'm realizing my my understanding of residential solar being what I learned approximately 15 years ago, and not really thinking about it much since is a it it's almost a for lack of a better term, it is a dumb solar system where it is just your power that you're generating, maybe you put that into a battery, or maybe it's just purely however much you generate, you have a net meter that that accounts for how much you're selling back to the grid. Whereas this really is a, it's a smart system where it all kind of plays off of each other, manages the load, and really maximizes the, the total energy 
total solar energy usage for the house. With that idea, I'm still curious though, in a in a general sense for for installing solar panels onto your roof, let's say you have some amount of battery storage. What is that how much of solar power, what percentage of solar power can a single house end up using? Well, that does vary uh, by climate, uh, by home. You know, what, what, what uh, type of roof do you have? How big's the roof? Uh, those kind of things. And so the most you know, unfortunate answer to your question, Joe, is it, it depends, uh, which again is unsatisfying, but it, it's a fact of life. And what I would say is, is that if you're living in some more temperate climates, such as Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Colorado, Northern California, the list goes on and on. Now that that is a very different answer, which is almost solidly 100%, no problem. Um, in a place that uses a lot of uh, energy per square foot of the home, like Houston, where where uh, where I live, that's going to be harder. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't get there; it just means you better have a, a house that's got a big roof on it. Uh, and if you don't, then it's going to be something more like in the you know, I don't know, I'll give you a, a guess here around 40, 50%. So again, going back into what I was saying about energy density moving up with the solar modules, that answer that I just gave you has been changing, right? It's over the years. And so as we move forward in time, my answer will hopefully be very different. It could be an emphatic, yeah, no matter what you have, we're, we're going to be able to get you 100% covered. The other thing I would point out is, is that as you have batteries to use in time when that monopoly is not there, the, the, the grid, the utility, again, wherever you want to call it, or they're not giving you a good financial deal, then that will in, 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 uh, mean that you need even more power, right, to fill the batteries up, if you will. Mm. And so that's another phenomenon we've been seeing. On top of that, now you've got EVs, you got electric vehicle, you got to fill that fill that electric vehicle up, or could that electric vehicle provide power back to the home when you need it? The answer to both of those is yes. And so that's another dynamic. So you can see that there's going to be an endless appetite for fitting as much solar on a roof, regardless of, of what your usage is uh, for, from here on out. And indeed, we're seeing a more uh, in our business, and this surprised me, a, a more of a demand for what we call up-powering, uh, getting more panels, more inverters, more batteries than, um, than it was previously able to be offered to the customer, you know, three, four, five, six, seven plus years ago. So uh, the, the in, uh, trend for wanting as much solar power as you can on your roof is most solidly intact. Sounds like that is good news that we are really trying to now maximize the the rooftop real estate that we have. If a follow-up question on that, if everybody installed rooftop solar so that every within reason, every rooftop, all the square footage in the US that was capable of a solar installation was now being utilized. Do you have any idea on how much power that would generate? Well, it depend on the day, depend on the weather, right? But I would say, Joe, that 
if you were to take, say, roughly, well, I think there's about 135 million households in the United States. Uh, we roughly think somewhere around three-fourths of those have a good roof and so forth and, and credit qualities and, and so forth that would enable a solar system. You know, so let's, you know, I don't know, 70, 85 million uh, homes. And then each home, our average system size is about eight kilowatts, uh, somewhere in there. And so you're you're seeing that average system size go up over time as well, as I mentioned earlier. So that you, you can do some math here on the back of the envelope and go, that's that's a lot of power. Uh, that could be it, it's definitely going to be a material portion of the nation's uh, energy uh, energy source. Yeah, that is that does end up being pretty big because that would be rough estimate 750 million kilowatts, which is which is pretty pretty big and pretty significant. So with that with that idea and and as we get more of this renewable energy on the grid, one thing that that us working in the renewable energy space are familiar with is the duck curve, famous in California for that excessive power generation during the middle of the day and not as much demand. And then this this excessive ramping up of power need at the end of the day, once you start having something like solar being turned off. And so not thinking about the ramping up and demand side right now, I want to think about the the actual lull in in demand, but the excessive amount of power production. Oftentimes what we what we call that is the the curtailment. Any power that's produced that isn't going to be used gets gets just wasted. How how is that how does that impact a rooftop solar installation? In my mind, really what I'm what I'm asking here is does that ultimately is that bad for the economics on rooftop solar? In, in short, the answer is no. Now, I'll give you a more uh, uh, detailed description why. We've talked about how we're going to see a system that's, that's very different from the consumer's point of view. Another way of viewing this in the, in the current energy system that's been with us for oh, 130 years is we talked about on the customer side of the meter, what we call behind the meter, right? Uh, let's talk yep. about the front of the meter. Let's talk about the utility side. Let's talk about the grid side, if you will. Again, whatever phrase you want to use. And here, we've got a lot of regulatory work to do. Uh, we need to figure out how do we take a power system that's 100% centralized, built for the industrial age, not the digital age, and transform it into something that's much more reliable, much more resilient, much cheaper, and gives consumers more options. You know, there may be some of us that now work entirely from home. The demand for that person for having high reliability is a lot more than somebody that continues to go into the office and has no kids, for instance. And so the willingness to pay is gonna be very different. We also have to deal with the ability to pay, of course, and how do we have equity and inclusion uh, across society. But the current way that we're approaching this situation is to disregard 
the behind the meter assets, solar, batteries, not have it into the resource planning that the utilities go through with the respective public utility commissions and focus focus solely on the centralized assets only. That's got to change. That's a waste of resources that creates the duck curve that creates all kinds of problems. We need to be sending price signals to everybody, to all the consumers, the residential, the commercial, the industrial, the government. And we also need to be treating centralized resources and decentralized resources like residential solar, batteries, et cetera, the same. That means that uh, there's going to be some big changes, I think. Uh, If you look at the ability to put solar in your home and just plug into the grid and maybe it works, maybe you did the maintenance, maybe you signed up with a service company like Sonova, maybe you didn't. And you have no idea whether that battery or solar is working or not. You just hadn't checked. You're busy with life. And then that hurricane comes in, that wildfire comes in and turns out your system doesn't work. So you're going to be going back to the utility and saying, hey, I need that power that you that you have. And the utility may say, I don't have that power. I didn't plan on it. I thought you were going to have that residential solar working. And so we can't have that. And so what we're going to end up having, and I predict, is we're going to have a regulatory structure that says you need a service provider both just as you do today on the centralized resources, whatever they may be, but also the decentralized resources if you want to get that those assets, if you will, at a more economic price. So if you want to participate in a larger system, if you want to have more resiliency, if you want to participate in society, if you will, then you're going to have to have somebody that's going to stand behind and make sure that your residential solar and batteries, generators, load management, EV charging, et cetera, is all working. And if it's not, they'll pick up a very hefty penalty uh, uh, tab. And uh, we're going to have this as a residential solar and batteries as part of the resource planning, which is going to even out a lot of the system itself, improve reliability, improve economics for everybody. And so this is really just the acknowledging that the power system will look more like the internet, having some centralized resources and some decentralized resources, but treating both of them uh, equally. I think that's a good analogy looking at the grid of the future as this as something more akin to the internet with the centralized and decentralized and and I think it it makes what you're saying makes so much sense about how we ultimately will need somebody and a a service provider company who is managing managing our our personal power system if we have this rooftop solar to make sure it's working because i think that's we all ultimately have some level even with our with our cars today we have some level of mechanic that that we go in and make sure our car is working properly and same with with different insurances and and all that different aspects of our life we always have somebody there who is this expert knowledge that we go to for help when we need it so it would only make sense that if we are adding this asset of of power generation onto our onto our residents then we should have somebody helping us manage it absolutely 
So I think by now I I am definitely convinced we should all have rooftop solar. If there's somebody who still isn't convinced, I, I think that this conversation should have helped them along. And one of the missions of Sonova is this energy independence. And, and you just mentioned equity, inclusion, being able to provide this this resource for for all. And this is in some situations, this would require, as as you pointed out just a second ago, with something like a hurricane or a wildfire or something that that knocks out the grid, in order to have energy independence, we need that solar plus energy storage. One thing that that I'm curious about with the current battery technology, what is the what's the size of a battery that a homeowner would need to go to really cover all of that downtime when they don't have the sun shining in order to have be able to be fully energy independent and fully reliable in the case of an emergency or in the case of of just wanting to be off grid. Well, again, the, the answer is it depends. It depends on how much energy you use and how big your home is and so forth. But you know, on, I would say on average, uh, two batteries uh, or two energy storage systems will pretty much do it for most homes. Three will definitely do it. Now, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good, you know, check size to write at this point in time. And so that's the bad news. Um, the two pieces of good news is, is that we do see batteries continuing their long-term trajectory downward in price, um, up in energy density and capability. Uh, there's been a bit of a hiatus in that in the last two and a half years. Maybe that lasts a little bit longer just given the energy global energy crisis uh, that's uh, been brought about over the last few uh, months, especially in the last few weeks with the uh, uh, with what's happening in the world in terms of national security issues. But it, when you look at uh, the other piece of, of, of good news to it is what we do. We provide that financing. Uh, so uh, we would go to uh, and do every single hour of every day, go to homeowners and say, you know, don't worry about the upfront cost. We will finance that. You can choose. Uh, and he's, here's even a better uh, news you can choose whatever financing type you want. If you want to monetize the tax credit, we'll give you a loan for 25 years. If you want to uh, have us monetize the tax credit, uh, we'll give you a lease and you can pay on a fixed rate per month. If you want to pay by the kilowatt hour and you want us to monetize the tax credit, you can pay us that at what they call a power purchase agreement. And so there's a lot of different options available to homeowners now where they don't have to write the check. And indeed, 95 plus, maybe 98% plus of the people don't and haven't uh, for years write a check up front for solar batteries, generators, et cetera. So it's, uh, it, it's something that um, we have done to make it economic for, for, for almost everyone. The thing that, it, it gets it, that we still haven't been able to solve that a utility has is how do you uh, get somebody signed up that has bad credit? And I, and I want to point out something. Bad credit doesn't necessarily mean that you have low income. Uh, there's plenty of people that make a lot of money, trust me, they can't seem to balance their checkbook and they have bad credit. 
But there is some overlap between bad credit and low income. So how do we solve that? How do we get back to this inclusive uh, society? And the way that we solve it today on the centralized system is, is that we socialize those losses. So it's not that the utilities have been able to manage you know, bad credit better than anybody else in the economy. It's because they experience the loss, the financial loss of people not paying their power bills. And then everybody else picks up the tab. Uh, and you're going you're to start to see, I predict, both at the federal level and at the state level, some recognition and, and programs that go to providing that state credit backstop to companies like us, to, to, to uh, service providers, energy service providers like ourselves, to enable us to go out there and offer solar batteries to folks that don't have uh, the best credit in the world. Uh, just like you, they, the state enables the centralized monopolies to do exactly that. Because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that, again, uh, we're inclusive. I really like that. And and as you pointed out, there are there are those different business models or, or financing options that that definitely help that that initial investment and that that upfront cost that probably stops most people and definitely helps helps make it make it more feasible. I'm curious with with that something that that I've wondered is there is there any way that financing could just be completely removed? Is there a way that because right now I think we're we're working under this this unspoken assumption or or given reality that the homeowner is ultimately buying this equipment and once it is fully paid off it is owned by the homeowner and that may be a, a misconception that I'm that I'm understanding but is there any way that say Sonova could come in and rent out the rooftop space and then give the homeowner a break on on the power price as opposed to selling the equipment and then letting them slowly pay it off. Does yes. that make sense? It does make sense. And for years, uh, we, we have had the ability to offer a lease and a power purchase agreement, which does just that. Uh, and so, you know, the ability or uh, to choose whichever way you want to go is absolutely there for, for homeowners. So if you want to, quote, own the equipment, if you will, and you do that under the loan, and then uh, you want to uh, have somebody else deal with that, you put it under a lease or PPA. What's unique about, and others, our competitors offer that as well. But what's unique to Sonova is, is that we have the same service, that same guarantee that the power will flow, whether it's a, a financed in terms of it being the equipment under a loan, a lease, or a PPA. And that's that's something that we did to further democratize or include folks in and said, hey, look, the kind of service that we're offering just to as an industry, just to the lease and PPA customers, that's not fair. We need to put it into the loan customers as well, because if anything, they they have the ownership of the equipment. They're taking more risk 
right, than the lease and PPA customers. And so we offer the same service uh, to those loan customers. So again, they don't have to pick uh, between having coverage and and not having coverage. They can simply do what's right for them and their and their family. Okay, that helps me understand the the whole market and the different different potential options out there. I guess the a few things that I that I want to cover kind of rapid fire for one of these loans or for one of these power systems what is the the kind of average payback time and i realize it'll depend on size and market how much power you're generating but is there a ballpark range that is typically planned with the financing and with the with these systems well it it it's typically about a payback We've always looked at it somewhere between an eight and twelve years, and and the and the variance is driven by, uh, and and there are some paybacks that are that are shorter than that. There are some paybacks that are longer than that. Uh, so the variance is driven by one, the financing type, how and and for loans, typically you pay off the loan much faster, so therefore your payback, you know, on our loan portfolio, for instance, would be more like in the six year range. Least PPA be more towards the 12, you know, 10, 12 year range. Uh, and and then when you look at the power rates of the utility, so your avoided cost, right? That's going to be a big part of your payback calculation, right? Well, as these rates have accelerated 20, 30, 40, 60 plus percent, those paybacks that the customer that signed up, say, I don't know, two, two years ago, they dramatically shortened, right? So if somebody thought they had an eight-year payback, it's probably now getting close to being cut in half. So it was best to really sign up early on the solar side of things or sign up, period, and not miss out. And that's what we, we think we're seeing right now. We're seeing a, a big move in sales upwards as people go out there and, and say, you know what? These utility rates are skyrocketing. You know, the... This is no, there's no end in sight here, and there isn't uh, for a variety of reasons. And therefore, I need to sign up for solar and batteries and in Sonova service. And the quicker you do that, uh, I will say this that the better deal you're going to get. Uh, I don't think that, um, you know, the idea that you just keep waiting and somehow it gets to be really, really cheap, like with other things, misses out that this is not, you know, an iPhone, uh, a, a cell phone business. This, this is the energy business and energy is going to continue to become more and more expensive again for a variety of reasons, climate change, national security issues, growth of demand globally. And it's best to uh, go ahead and sign up now so that your payback periods can hopefully shrink um, even more than, than, than uh, you thought they would. Yeah. Yep. And right now, I realize with inflation and supply demand issues, there are, or supply chain issues, there are, this is a moving target. So anybody listening to this, even three months from now, right now we're recording in April of 2022. So even next summer, this is going to be totally different. But I'm I'm curious, what is kind of the average price for electricity that is generated from from a rooftop solar 
Well, I, I do know it used to be around 16 cents for a long period of time. And remember, we have a lot of markets that, you know, say prior to last year, uh, were, were more in the, in the, you know, upper 20s, even some in the 30s uh, cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, in some cases, it could have been as high as you know fifty cents a kilowatt hour on a tier three in California, for instance. Uh, the rates have gone up a lot, right? As I've said multiple times, and and I don't know the answer uh, right off the the cuff because of rates have been moving up so fast and continue to do so. Most utilities, by the way, uh, are starting a second rate increase request with the Public Utility Commission before the first one or the previous one rather is even approved. That's what's going on. It's going on that quickly. Wow. And, and so right now I would have to say, we're probably be pushing rates up, you know, towards, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me to see it at towards 19 cents on our side. And the average utility rate has, has gone from say, uh, call it, you know, somewhere around probably 14 cents, um, a year or so ago. Uh, I think we probably end the year with the average utility rate, you know, pushing towards, that 19 cents and the utility rate in our service territories uh, to, to match with the, the the previous rate I gave you around 16 cents going to 19 cents, the utility rates in those territories will be in the 20s for sure. Uh, so as you can see, we're, we're lagging the utility rate increases and that's intentional to give that customer a better deal wherever it may be. And some uh, areas of the country are increasing uh, in terms of rates faster than others. But I think overall, we're going to have a pretty tremendous surge in utility rates here uh, when you go back and, and look at the the trough, if you will, of kind of 2020 and look ahead for 10 years. I think you're going to find a, a very, very large increase in utility rates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the the sense of urgency that that I can hear we should have with rooftop solar and, and really, I mean, the as we're talking, one one thing I'm thinking about is I, I studied abroad in Iceland while for my master's, and one of the stories. This was right after the Great Recession in 2008. One of the stories that that Icelanders love to tell was that they have they have district heating systems all driven by geothermal, and they have very cheap energy all hydro power and geothermal generated and because of the whole financial crisis and really the collapse of their entire economy one of the saving graces for them was their their energy independence of having these very abundant renewable energy sources that kept their heating and cooling bills low and ultimately kept their electricity bills low and it's it is very relevant today as we're talking about the excessive increases or really really more the drastic increases of electricity rates across the board, not only in the US, but kind of worldwide and the changes in the energy industry. It now more more than ever is it's important for us to kind of be in control of our own energy and that being something that we have installed on our houses that we can rely on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your point is well taken, Joe. Uh, everything I've been 
discussing is the United States, but you go look over in Europe, for instance, and, and even you know Asia, pick Japan, for instance, their problems are a lot uh, bigger than what we what I just laid out for the United States. Mm-hmm. One question. So we've been talking about the financial aspect of of solar energy. What about somebody who is more focused on CO two reduction, or or a a company or corporation more focused on CO two reduction, and wants to consider rooftop solar for their starting to talk about that for their their large industrial buildings? I realize that the the power generated is emission free, so that's where you start getting that CO two reduction. What about the total life cycle assessment of of one of these solar power systems? What is that that cutoff in time when a system can start being kind of a net negative carbon footprint? I realize this again is dependent on what the different energy you could be buying this from, but is there a, a general rule of thumb in like five to 10 years or, or something like that? Uh, yeah, there's a lot more that goes into that as far as like, for instance, you know, what power is used to make the panel in the first place. And so, you know, that is a question that uh, I'd have to say that I don't have an answer or straight answer for you. Um, at, at this point in time, I'd have to really get more specifics and, and dig into the details there to be able to give you that. You know, what I would say, you know, from history, it, it has been is that uh, that whole process of making the panels got more efficient. And, and part of the cost declines is making that process, you know, to make the panels more efficient. Right. So I, I, it, it's, it's something that uh, I think the energy payback has been moving towards uh, something within that three to five year range. And so my guess is, is that the emissions would be that or something inside that. Okay. Yeah. And I think that is, that's one of those aspects that, that is very important as we're talking about the IPCC targets and the staying below one and a half degrees Celsius one thing that we always have to be thinking about is that life cycle assessment and ultimately how much total carbon can we be removing by by a new generation of power absolutely it's a it's a great question undoubtedly solar uh no matter you know what that equation comes out to be is is definitely a huge carbon offset right and it's it's a key part of any, of any plan to fight climate change. Yep. Yep. I agree. Now, one thing that this is a, maybe a quick question. I have been saying homeowner a lot and we've been talking about the, the focus on the residential side and really the, the individual family home portion of residential solar. What about those renting? What about larger residential uh, apartment complexes? And then what about going into kind of commercial real estate and commercial buildings? Are there any are there any up and coming ideas or ways to 
enter into those arenas? I guess what I'm trying to ask is how can how can people and how can businesses start gaining this energy independence? Well, you know, we, we do focus, as you point out, uh, Joe, uh, on residential um, single family homes in particular. And there are plans and have been plans for years to go into community solar, which would uh, enable us to serve apartments and condominiums and and uh, other types of residences away from the single family home structure. Uh, and then also going into commercial, probably more on the small commercial side rather than large commercial industrial. Uh, one thing is it that the uh, systems, operations, and people that you need for residential uh, behind the meter is materially different than what you would need for, say, a utility-scale solar plant. And the closer that you get um, to the utility scale solar, the more far afield you come, you come away from your core competencies and the ability to increase what we call operating leverage, right, on the company. So basically squeezing more um, cash flow out of, out of a dollar, more profitability out of a dollar. And so I, I've maintained that we would stay away from anything that looked like utility scale. And that would, you know, definitely include large industrial, large commercial and so forth. So um, it, we... We will enter those markets of the apartments and the small commercial at some point in time. Uh, but uh, right now, we're just focused on the single family uh, homes. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense now hearing through your answer, the the idea of economy of scale and the ability to scale up. Because if the majority of houses are in a, say, 5 to 10 kilowatt size solar array, then once you start talking about a significantly larger building and now going to something like 100 kilowatts, that can be, as you point out, a significant difference in the manpower you need and just the overall logistics. So that makes sense. Yeah. Given given everything we've talked about, where do you see the future of residential solar? I see, I see a future that will literally transform the energy industry of the world. Uh, you know, for the first time since Thomas Edison, we have a technology, solar, and its necessary uh, technology counterpart uh, is is the battery, whatever the chemistry of that battery may may be. Uh, you have something in solar, which is you have a distributed fuel source, and you have a distributed conversion of, from BTU to a megawatt hour, kilowatt hour electricity. You've never had those two before. If you think back in the Niagara Falls, the, uh, the first major power plant in the United States, back into the age of, of Edison, uh, that was a waterfall and it was a centralized BTU source. And the steam turbines were essentially had to be very large so that they can have enough efficiency to make it worthwhile. And you wired the power out to the homes, literally. And you can see that with coal. You can see that with uh, oil. You can see that with natural gas, obviously nuclear. Nobody's going to have a nuclear power plant, at least not, no time soon in their backyard. And so all these, even wind, even wind was centralized resource. But 
not solar. You've got sunlight strikes almost every place on the on the face of the earth. That's clearly distributed. And the conversion efficiency is no different if you're sitting on a rooftop or if you're sitting in a field full of millions of solar panels. There's no difference in that. So when you look at this technology, you'd have to say, gosh, this is fundamentally going to change the world. It's going to change the energy business. And I think that uh, what we have to do state by state, community by community, country by country, is rethink our regulatory rules and and, uh, the way that we organize ourselves to deliver energy in the most efficient, the least amount of carbon processes as possible so that we can incorporate this new technology and technologies that may come. For instance, fuel cells and hydrogen and all the software that we've discussed talking about load management, all this is coming together to give us a radically different, more democratized, more individualistic, but also a better solution for societies as a whole. And this something is it's quite exciting. A lot of challenges left to uh, to overcome, but fundamentally, we have now the building blocks of technology and consumer changes and demands to change the world, to address climate change, to address national security issues, so that I think we're going to have a massive change wave that we're just on the on, on the cusp of at this point in time. And we'll look back just even 10 years from now and say, my, we've come a very, very long way. I like that answer. And I, I like the the way that thinking about it, that solar really is the that is the resource that is completely widespread and everywhere. And it it may vary in some in some degrees. There may be better areas than others, but it really, as you point out, touches almost every single spot of the earth. And thinking about it in that way, and one thing that, that we all say with with the energy transition, it's kind of an all of the above solution. And with the whole earth being being exposed to solar energy, that should be a significant portion of the of the all of the above because it's something everybody can get access to. With that, I want to jump into the final questions. These are the questions I ask every guest that are not necessarily technology specific, but but are relevant to to the energy transition, to the idea of moving forward with modern life. The first question, what is the most important book you've ever read? Wow. Um, I would I would have to say that it would be, you know, aside from any religious book like the Bible, I'd, t- I'd have to say that it would it would be Titan, uh, the story of, of John D. Rockefeller. I, I think that had a very large impact on me. And it's certainly something that I just I look towards in history to try to figure out what were the fundamental issues and dynamics that existed to to bring oil on top of the world, so to speak, in such a short period of time, rel- you know, relative uh, fashion. And I think I think that's uh, something that's had the most impact on me is how do we make this happen, but not for oil this time, but for for solar and, and batteries. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. I always like that. The idea of reading something and being able to apply that to a new area, very similar type of problem, but now taking those insights and being able to apply it to, to a new expanse of energy. With that idea, when will we be net zero? I think maybe you're going to also say net zero, or maybe I'll say it for you. I think net zero is going to require nearly every rooftop having solar. I think that's a a given. So the idea of being able to expand all of the way that we pulled oil out of the ground, expanding rooftop solar to every single rooftop as part of this net zero, when are we going to be able to do that? Well, I think you know, in terms of, of zero, that's going to be tough to, to pinpoint clearly. But but I think maybe a even better way of looking at it is when are we going to break that curve on carbon emissions to get us down below where, where you know, uh, the scientists have said that we need to get to as fast as we can. And some scientists have said we've already passed that point that we needed to, to be at that level, right? I actually am more optimistic and I understand the numbers and I understand how overwhelming the problem you know, is when you look at the details and the numbers. Uh, we have an issue where you've got to balance not just fighting climate change and therefore decarbonization, but you've got to now make sure that you have enough energy out there for people to live and live well everywhere in the world, not just part of the world. And you need to recognize that there are some forms of energy that are more susceptible to dictators and to governments that will misuse and weaponize those energy sources. And we have to take that ability away from them as it literally you know, causes death and destruction in the world, not just be, you know, with climate change. So I think that the, as you balance these off, these are, these are formidable challenges. You can't just say, let's just go decarbonize and put solar panels everywhere right away. It just doesn't work that way. Um, with that said, those same challenges and issues are sending price signals our way that I think will increase in frequency and magnitude to accelerate this change at a much faster pace than we could have understood as little as 40 days ago. And I think that that gives me a great deal of hope, you know, oddly enough, that we can achieve that bending of the carbon emissions within the next uh, 10 to 20 years, uh, if not sooner. I think as if you open up and give people the opportunity and the choice and the market's uh, ability to solve this problem and give it a firm direction through policy with multiple countries, I think we can achieve something that we don't believe that we can achieve ourselves today. I think there's more ability in the human race than we give ourselves credit for. I like that answer. And, and that's, that's one that, that I hear often. It is the, it is the energy of human ingenuity that will ultimately get us to net zero or the way you put it, breaking the curve and, and keeping us below the, the 1.5 Celsius. 10 to 20 years is, is one of the more ambitious 
uh, estimates or guesses, if you will. And I think it it's exciting to think about. And as you put it, hopeful, because there is there is as you look at innovation that's occurring, and as you look at all of the all of the great ideas and the momentum that we have with the energy transition, it is a it is a hopeful time and a very exciting time to be in energy. With that, I've got my last question. Do you have one question for me? Last question. What do you think? What's your guess? With net zero, and it it is in here, this, this question, and it's phrased as net zero. As you point out, the idea of, of zero is a, is a tough idea. And really the, the whole point is to, to help people think and, and really see, are they looking at, are we more optimistic about the future and the climate change problem? Or are we pessimistic with that i would say i fall into originally i fell into the pessimistic category and my my guess is closer to 2075 maybe 2100 and that's coming from the geothermal realm because Geothermal being a baseload power, being that foundation and that baseline energy that we need for for grid stability, that is coming from the the old centralized view of the U.S. energy grid, and that is coming from the idea that that the amount of lithium the amount of batteries that we need to extract from the earth is going to be is going to be large and the process of building all of the power that we need in order to be net zero is is not a quick process so if we started today and started doing absolutely everything we could have a significant portion built by my guess would be 2050 which is about 30 years but even with the with the need for a significant amount of baseload power which is which is a preconceived notion that i have and and i am maybe still in that camp that we we need a strong baseload for the for the energy infrastructure and with geothermal i think should be that baseload energy and we are still 10 years out from from technology disrupting life-changing demonstration projects if we do those demonstrations in 10 years and can start actually going in and building power plants, then we're probably another 10 to 20 years out of having a significant portion of this this very high energy density geothermal energy on the grid. So to me, 
40 to 50 years is is kind of a minimum. But again, as I have conversations like this one and with the idea of load balancing and improving overall efficiencies and also energy densities of things like rooftop solar, I think I'm I'm slowly getting more and more optimistic about about net zero and about the energy transition and and how fast we're really going. It's a long-winded answer. It's a great, great answer. I, I can't disagree with much of what you said. So um, I just, I'm hopeful that as we have more market-based uh, economies and, and solutions that focus on what the consumer wants and the pricing that goes along with the hydrocarbons in particular and centralized systems, you know, those price signals are, are increasing. Uh, I think that we can uh, hopefully find a way to get there faster, accelerate what you just laid out. But uh, yep. we'll see. Uh, a crisis is something that, um, you know, as they, as they say, uh, the, the necessity of uh, innovation or invention is, you know, or, or the, the, is, is the mother is, is necessity, right? I stumbled through that, yep. but you get the point. So uh, that's what creates, you know, that's what happens in war. That's what happens in times of crisis. And we're certainly in a time of crisis, uh, really, frankly, on both those fronts, right? So yep. uh, my guess is uh, things accelerate tremendously. Yep, absolutely. Well, John, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? O- only that, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we've got a lot of changes that are coming our way and, and are necessary, particularly on the regulatory side of the United States to to, to uh, welcome the change of technology that is solar, there's batteries, there's software that uh, EVs, uh, you know, even in maybe fuel cells and hydrogen, there's a lot that's happening out there and it's accelerating. Some is already commercial uh, in, the, in the form of solar, and in many cases, batteries, for instance. And so as we move forward in time, I'm quite optimistic that uh, we'll be able to meet these huge challenges that we face, which are changing consumer demands and, and wanting more reliability and climate change and national security uh, issues. And so I'm quite optimistic on the future, but we, we certainly have a lot of work uh, left to do. And here at Sonova, we're, we're eagerly awaiting that work and, and, uh, and see it in front of us and, and look forward to tackling those problems and taking care of our customers one customer at a time. Well, John, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for that. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. The Canon is my office when I'm in Houston. And don't forget, it is where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixtures, which you should also be checking out. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. 
Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.